The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I want to start with a question. How important is a promise? Eight days ago, St. John Properties, a real estate firm in Maryland, held their annual holiday party. And at the party, all 198 employees came from around the country. They were flown in. And as they entered the party, they were given a red envelope. And on the red envelope was their name and a note that says, please do not open this envelope until you are told to do so. Inside the red envelope was a Christmas promise. Before opening the envelopes, Ed St. John, I'm assuming the the owner and probably founder of St. John's Realty, stood in front of the crowd and he told them that inside the red envelope was their part of a $10 million Christmas bonus. They were then given permission to open their red envelopes. And you can actually watch the video of this happening. It's posted all over social media and on YouTube and things like that. And as they're opening the envelopes and as they're seeing the gift that they are given, you see them gasping with air, grown men crying in disbelief. The bonuses were not the same for all the people. They were based on tenure. But the bonus averaged around $50,000 a person. One man who was a maintenance technician who started in 1981 received a bonus of $200,000. Another person got a bonus of $270,000. That night, the the employees were talking about what they were going to do with their bonus, that they were going to pay off their kids' college tuition, that they were going to pay off their mortgage, that they were going to pay off their debt or restore their savings that had been depleted, how they were going to go on vacation or buy a lake house or whatever it might be. In interviews after this great ordeal, they were, the employees said that, that, the, that the owner did not have to do what he did. That what happened that night was magical and that it had been life-changing to them. Now I know what you're thinking. I could do real estate, right? What's the name of that company again? They have received a lot of job applications since last Saturday, I will say. How important is a promise? I think the importance of a promise depends both on the size of the promise, but also on the size of the need of the recipients of that promise. See, while a $50,000 bonus might seem like a lot of money to us, to a multi-billionaire, it's a drop in the bucket. It does not mean that much. But to someone who is trying to pay off debt or pay off a college tuition or pay off medical bills, $50,000 is life-changing. How important is a promise? It all depends on the size of the promise, but also the size of the need of the recipients of that promise. This week and next, we will be looking at the most wonderful promise in the history of the world. It is the Christmas promise that God has given to us, which is far greater than $10 million. It is a gift that is truly priceless, both because of the size of the gift, but also because the size of our need 
for the gift. This week we'll be looking at the making of God's Christmas promise. Next week we will be looking at the fulfillment of God's Christmas promise. If you would please open up to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And it is page 3 in that red Bible. Pretty easy to find this week. It's near the beginning. All of you are probably familiar, even if you haven't grown up in the church, you're probably familiar with the first few chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, it tells us of how God created all things throughout the entire universe. Genesis chapter 2 narrows down the focus and zooms in on God's creation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, God speaks to Adam and God gives Adam a tremendous promise, but also a warning. God says to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God makes his promise. All of these trees, eat any of them, except this one. And how does the story go? Genesis 3, verse 6. Look there with me if you would. We'll read all the way down through verse 21. Genesis 3, verse 6. So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. 
till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let's pray. Lord God, help our hearts be still in this moment to behold the promise of Christmas. To discover anew the joy of Christmas. Lord, I pray during this time and over the next few weeks, you would help us to focus on the real reason for celebration. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider the Christmas promise given in Genesis chapter 3, there are three questions I want to ask of the text today. The first is this, why do we need the Christmas promise? If you remember, we said the importance of a promise depends on the need of the recipients for the promise. And so why do we need the Christmas promise? Secondly, what is the Christmas promise? And thirdly, how can we receive the Christmas promise. And so why do we need the Christmas promise? What is it and how do we receive it? First, why do we need the Christmas promise? In order to fully grasp our need for the Christmas promise, we actually have to go backwards a little bit and dive into Genesis chapter 2 to understand what the world was like before the Christmas promise was ever needed. And so I want to look at a few verses here. If you would turn back just to Genesis chapter 2, a page or wherever it is in your Bible. And I want to look at a few verses here and see what the world was like as God had created it. So look at verse 7 with me in chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And so here we have a picture of what it looked like in the beginning. The world as it was created to be. God creates man and woman and he puts them in the garden and he gives them all of this amazing fruit to eat. He gives them a river to drink from and to nourish the plants of the garden. Everything there is perfect and it is holy and it is happy. Verse 15 continues. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now I know many people think that work is a necessary evil, but we look and see in Genesis chapter 2 that work is actually a good part of God's creation. That we were created to work, that we were created to exercise dominion righteously as God has instilled in us over whatever part of creation is underneath us. Whether that be washing dishes or working on an assembly line or running a company or mowing our lawn, we are called to work and rule righteously. This is a good part of God's creation. If you don't believe me, just ask someone who has been unemployed. They will tell you that work is a good thing. 
Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, literally he sang, he rejoiced, he celebrated, this is poetic. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Whether you are married or you have a desire to be married, is this not what you want your marriage to look like? Do you, husbands, do you not want a wife that you rejoice over, that you delight in? Wives, do you not want a husband that sings over you, that cherishes you? Again, in Genesis 2, marriage is perfect. It is happy. It is holy, just like everything else. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This verse is critical for us understanding what comes next. You see, the man and the woman were naked, not only before each other, but more importantly, they were naked before God. Naked physically, yes, but naked emotionally, spiritually, morally. They were completely exposed to a holy God. And they had no shame. What we see here described in Genesis chapter 2 in many ways feels like an alternative universe, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 2 is a description of paradise. Genesis chapter 2 is what every one of our hearts long for and would quickly trade $10 million to get it back. This paradise was a gift from God to man forever, again, with only one contingency, not a burdensome contingency, just one contingency. Eat any tree you want, even the tree of life. Eat any tree. Just do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, back to Genesis 3, verse 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In paradise, when Adam and Eve broke God's one simple command, they immediately knew evil, not just intellectually, but experientially. They knew evil deep down in their souls. They experienced the filthiness of evil, the darkness of evil, the shame of evil. Have you experienced evil? Not just intellectually, but in your soul? They experienced it and they were ashamed. And so what did they do? They sewed together fig leaves to cover their shame. Verse 8 continues, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees uh, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. In verse 9, God asked that penetrating question to humanity, a question that God already knew the answer to. It's kind of like asking a kid with chocolate all over his face, did you get into the cookies, right? God knows the answer to this, but God asked the penetrating question of Adam, where are you? Adam is, or God is raising to the verbal plane what is going on in the heart of Adam. Adam says, I was naked and afraid. And he was naked and afraid because he was naked and ashamed. And so Adam, for the first time, hid from the God who made him, who sustained him, and who loved him. Paradise was shattered. Man had been divided from an intimate, wonderful, joyous relationship with his creator, God. You know, God's penetrating question in the garden still echoes down today. God still calls out to men and women and says, where are you? And so let me ask you, where are you in your relationship with God? Are you chasing after sin? Are you hiding from God? Are you ashamed Unable to come to God, to enjoy God, to delight in God. You know, all of us at one time have been stuck in our sin and in our shame. And all of us have hid ourselves from God. And we avoid His commands and His presence and His word to our own destruction. Verse 11 continues. says, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Remember just 14 verses earlier, Adam is rejoicing and singing over his bride. And now Adam resents his wife. Adam blames God, actually blames God for giving him a woman that would lead him astray. Instead of understanding and remembering that his wife is a blessing, he now believes his wife to be a curse, to be a burden. I'm sure none of you can resonate with that today. Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Just as Adam took no ownership of his sin, but instead shifted it onto the woman and onto God, now the woman is not taking any ownership of her sin, and she is shifting the blame onto Satan. In other words, she's saying, the devil made me do it. The fallout of their sin spirals downward. As we continue to look at Genesis chapter 3, we see in verse 16, God says the woman will not have pain in childbearing and child rearing, that she will seek to control her husband, but he will bully her. He will seek to dominate her. Verse 17 says that Adam's God, 
that Adam's good work will now be done in pain and with frustration, and that the dust he came from, he will now return to. All of us could testify to how these things are true. Due to Adam and Eve's original sin, that sin that they thought would be so pleasurable and so wonderful, that original sin shattered not only their, but our relationship with God. Their original sin shattered, not only there, but also our relationship with one another, with husbands and wives, family members. And their original sin shattered our relationship with creation. In toil, we work. That original sin shattered the paradise that your heart longs for. Now you may be here and say, well, it's, that's kind of a downer. It's not so bad. There's a lot of blessings in this life and much to be thankful for, which is certainly true. God has poured out his grace on us. But here's the thing. As great as the blessings of life are today, it's only a broken shadow of the paradise God has intended for us. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was in I was either late elementary school or early junior high, I can't remember, we had these, uh, I don't know, they weren't physical exams, they were some sort of exams where they would just check out our health at the school. And so I went there and they had said, you know what, you need to go see the eyeball doctor. So I went to see the eyeball doctor and when I was there, the optometrist, right, isn't that what it's called? But anyway, so I was at the optometrist and they put a bunch of, you know, this, this mechanism in front of my face and they flipped through these lenses and they said, you know, what's better, number one, number two, A or B, things like that. You know how that goes, you've probably been there. And after I'm done there at the eyeball doctor, surely enough, he says, yep, Dan needs glasses. And so we ordered glasses, and we had to go back and pick them up because we couldn't get them right away. And I remember we went back, and I put on glasses for the very first time. And the way that my mom tells this story, I don't remember this part, but she says, when I put the glasses on, I was looking around at everything around me. And then I looked at her, and I said, you have a lot of wrinkles. You know, I was seeing the world in a whole, whole new way because of these glasses. And so the trees were greener. They were crisper. The stars were more beautiful, more brilliant. They were brighter, more wonderful. I mean, there was a whole new world around me. Here's the point. Before I was tested at school, I thought my eyesight was fine. I thought I was seeing the world clearly because that was my normal. I thought that's how everybody saw the world. But when I got my glasses on, when I, when I looked through these glasses, I got to see the world as it really was. Friends, certainly God has poured out so many blessings upon us, and maybe this world does not seem all that bad at times. But are we seeing the world clearly? See, Genesis 2 and 3 are glasses. God's word are glasses given to us to see the world as it was meant to be and as it actually is now. I mean, can you imagine a world with no more sin, no more temptation, no more shame. Can you imagine a world where there is perfect harmony between you and God? Can you imagine a world where there is no more yelling or crying at home? Can you imagine a world where work comes easily? Can you imagine a world where husbands cherish their wives and wives respect their 
husbands, can you imagine a world where there is no more divorce, no more wars, no more hurricanes, no more bullies, no more starvation, no more political corruption, no more impeachment trials, no more doctors, no more death, no more pain, and no more crying. Can you imagine a world like that? That is the world that we are intended for. That is the way the world was before the fall. And through God's Christmas promise, that is the way the world will be again. Friends, Genesis 2 shows us the paradise we were created for. Genesis 3 reminds us of how paradise has been shattered. And that's why we need the Christmas promise. Now, what is the Christmas promise? How is God going to undo the misery of the fall of mankind? Well, look at verse 14 with me. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, crafty Satan, Because you have done this, that is, deceived humanity into rebellion and misery, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here is the Christmas promise. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, while Genesis 3 clearly articulates shattered shalom, God in his grace wastes no time in providing a promise of restoration through his Christmas promise found in this verse. What is so fascinating about this Christmas promise, something that I've never really recognized before, is who the Christmas promise is given to. Do you notice who the promise is given to in this chapter? The promise, the Christmas promise, is given to Satan. It's given to Satan, but it's given for us. In this passage, looking at verses 15 through 16, something very peculiar happens with the language here. Two things. A, a, a plural becomes a singular, just kind of out of nowhere, and a struggle becomes an absolute. And I'll show you. So a plural becomes a singular, and a struggle becomes an absolute. So look at verse 15 with me again. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, which is plural, and her offspring, which is plural. But then it turns all of a sudden to singular and says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is happening here is that God is telling Satan that his descendants and the descendants of Eve will be in enmity, hostility, animosity against each other. There will be a struggle against one another. But one day there will become a singular offspring of Eve who will come and who will strike the head of Satan and crush him. Genesis 3.15 is what theologians call the proto-euagelion. Proto meaning the first, like prototype, euagelion, meaning the gospel, the good news. It is the first proclamation of the good news of the gospel of God. It is the Christmas promise. Throughout the Old Testament, this Christmas promise is recited time and time again. Whenever it seems like God's people have outsinned his grace, have outsinned his promise, God gives the promise again with more detail and more information that makes 
makes it all the more wonderful. I'll give you just a few examples. In 2 Samuel 7, God tells us that this offspring of Eve will also be the offspring of David, that he will establish a kingdom that will endure forever and that he will be the son of God. We learn from Isaiah that, that this offspring of Eve will be born of a virgin, that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, that the seed of the Eve will be a great light who will bring joy and will carry the titles Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's Christmas promise is not a thing. It is a person, and not any person, a champion that will crush the head of Satan and reign victorious. You know, I grew up in St. Louis, and for much of my childhood, we only had two professional teams in St. Louis. Uh, we never had an NBA team, and for a long season, we didn't have an NFL team. And so the two professional teams were the St. Louis Cardinals and the St. Louis Blues. And it may be hard to imagine it in this culture, but hockey was such a... a, a it's such a widely followed sport in our city. I mean, we were always talking about at school what happened the game at the game the night before and things like that. I mean, it was fans were crazy about the Blues. The hard thing though was that we were not very good. We never won a Stanley Cup, and so we were always ending the year on a sad note, feeling defeated. But then in 1996, I believe it was February, they signed a new player who is called the Great One. Maybe you know who it is. His name is Wayne Gretzky. Even if you don't know hockey, you've probably heard that name. He's the greatest hockey player of all time. And so optimism in the city was sky high. The hopes of the city were put on this one person that he at least, that he would at, at, at least finally bring triumph to the city, that he would crush our enemies and give us the spoils and joys of victory. Sadly, the great one was only with our team for a few months he never delivered, and he went away to another team. Our promised champion failed us. The Christmas promise that God gives in Genesis 3.15 and throughout the Old Testament is that God himself will send a champion, a child that will crush the head of Satan, a child who will establish a forever kingdom of God, a child born of a virgin, a child who will be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. And as we will see, God's promised one does not abandon us and he does not fail. Indeed, he does crush the head of Satan and brings to God's people the spoils of his victory, which ultimately is found in God himself. And so let me say this very clearly. The Christmas promise that God has given, the ultimate Christmas promise, is not a thing but it is a who. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our champion that crushes the head of Satan on our behalf to reverse the effects of this fall. So why do we need the Christmas promise? Because paradise has been shattered by sin. What is the Christmas promise? That God would send his one and only son to crush the head of Satan. Finally, how do we receive this Christmas promise? Well, the simple answer is we receive it by faith. This is, as we will see, how Adam receives God's promise. 
You know, all of us here are familiar with the word Eve, the name Eve. We've all heard the name Eve. Can you guess how many times the name Eve is used in the Old Testament? What would you guess, 30, 40, 50? The name Eve is used twice in the Old Testament, only twice. Once in this verse and once in a few verses that we'll see in a little bit. And the first time the name Eve is used is as a sign of faith. Verse 20, again, look with me. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The name Eve literally means life or living. And Adam names her Eve before she has any children. Before she conceives any children. Before there have ever been children in the history of the world. And yet Adam believes the promises of God. By faith, he claims them as his own. He believes that even though they have sinned, God will not bring immediate death upon them physically, but that God, by his grace, will give her descendants an offspring, and the ultimate offspring, who will be the crusher of Satan's head. Adam believes. And so in faith, without any children, he calls his, name, his wife's name Eve the mother of all living. The second time we see the name Eve is just a few verses later and it is a fulfillment of Adam's faith, of God's promise. Look at Genesis 4 verse 1. Same page or one page over in your Bible. It says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, that is, he knew her romantically, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This shows us immediately in the beginning of the story of redemption that God is true to his promises of grace. And all who hope in God's promises, like Adam, like Noah, like Abraham, like Moses, like you and like me, all who trust in God's promises will not be put to shame. They will not be embarrassed. They will not be let down because God always fulfills his promises of grace. And so how do we receive the Christmas promise? Well, like Adam, we receive it actively by faith. Actively by faith. But we also receive it passively by blood. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Genesis 3.21. You'll probably never see it cross-stitched on a banner or hung in a room, but I think it is one of the most beautiful displays of the gospel throughout the entirety of Scripture. And it is pregnant with meaning. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothe them. Again, at first glance, it does not seem like there's much there. It's just details that God is throwing in there. But consider this question. Why did God clothe them in garments of skin? As we read on in this chapter, we see God is urgent to send them out of the Garden of Eden so that they don't eat of the tree of life. So God is urgently doing this. And yet God says, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. Time out, time out, time out, time out. Wait, we cannot let them go out dressed in fig leaves. Why could they not be dressed in fig leaves? Is it because it did not match the color of their eyes? Is it because it was too cold outside and fig leaves did not provide enough warmth? Why was it that God said, slow down the process, time out, wait, before we send them out of the Garden of Eden, we must clothe them 
in garments of skin, in animal hides. Why did God, who gave life to all things, for the first time in the history of the world, put to death the life of these animals to make garments of skin? Let me remind you what God says in Genesis 2, 17. God tells Adam and Eve that the wages of sin is death. And God is a person who keeps his word. And so if Adam and Eve are not going to die for their sin, other innocent ones would have to die in their place to satisfy the just wrath of God, to atone or to pay for their sin. Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, in order for guilty Adam and Eve to live, an innocent animal had to die in their place. Genesis 3.21 starts the sacrificial system, which is formalized later in the Old Testament as an atonement for sin. Now, this word atonement is not something we use often, but it means to appease or to cover. And here you see that they are appeasing the justice and the wrath of God for their sin, but it also covers. Do you remember why Adam and Eve put together the fig leaves? It was to cover their sin and to cover their shame. But the leaves were not good enough. God had to make another covering, a blood covering, an atonement that would cover their nakedness, cover their sin, and cover their shame. And yet all of this was point to point to a greater atonement that was yet to come, a greater appeasement of God's justice, a greater shed blood to cover the sin and shame for all who believe and the Christmas promise, just as the sin of Adam and Eve had to be atoned for, so does yours and so does mine. And just as God had provided a sacrifice for atonement for Adam and Eve, he has also done so for us. Romans 3 says it this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. And so how do we receive the Christmas promise? The Christmas promise of Christ, of atonement, of redemption, of salvation. Genesis 3 shows us, and Romans 3 shows us, that actively we receive it by faith and passively we receive it by blood. One night there's a story of a, of a house that caught fire and one of the children could not go down and so they went up to the roof of the house and when he was up there he heard the sound of his father's voice down below on the street and the father said jump jump and he gave this promise if you jump I will catch you I promise I will catch you the boy knew that he had to leap to save his life but the boy couldn't see his dad all he could see is smoke and flames and blackness. And as you can imagine, he was very afraid to make, make that leap of faith to trust his father's promise. His father kept yelling out his promise, jump, I will catch you. And the boy said, but daddy, I can't see you. And he said, yes, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. Salvation was available to this boy, but only by faith. He had to believe his father's promise that he would catch him. 
Friends, here is the Christmas promise that in the midst of our sin and misery and shame, God sent the promised one, the great one, the innocent one, the champion, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. And at the cross, he took on our sin, he took on our shame and made atonement through his blood. And on the third day, he rose again, crushing the head of Satan so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so let me ask you, have you made that leap of faith? Not an uneducated or foolish leap of faith, but have you made this leap of faith based on the promises of God and the faithfulnesses of God? God? Have you made the leap of faith to receive the Christmas promise? You know, one of my favorite Christmas gifts growing up was the early Christmas gift. You know what I'm talking about? It's two weeks in advance. You're going to see your family, and so mom or dad says, hey, you can open up this one early, and lo and behold, it's a really nice shirt that you can wear and go see your relatives, right? It's something that you need, and so they're like, all right, we'll give you this early Christmas gift. Friends, this is the early Christmas gift for you. You do not have to wait to open it. Why do we need the Christmas promise? Because paradise has been shattered. Why What is the Christmas promise? That God would send his one and only son, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of Satan on the cross. And how do we receive this Christmas promise? Actively by faith in Jesus Christ and passively by the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. This is the Christmas promise. What a Savior, what a God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did not give up on humanity. You could have. You had every right to. But you bound yourself to us through your own promise to rescue us and to deliver us that we might know what it is to be reconciled to you, Lord. And God, we look forward to that day when your kingdom will come in full. Paradise and Eden will be restored and there will be no more temptation. There will be no more opportunity to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We will only eat from the tree of life and all of the trees that you provide for us for the rest of eternity and we will enjoy your presence forever and for always and we will be happy and holy just as you created us to be. Help us to remember that this Christmas season. Help us, Lord, if we, have, if we have made this leap of faith, if we have opened this gift before, help us to not set it aside, but to enjoy it morning after morning, day after day, knowing that our God is faithful to his promise to save and to deliver us and to draw us to himself. We thank you for that, Lord. God, as we turn to your table, we're reminded that promises are debts, debts unpaid. And yet you have paid the debt of your promise, God. You have paid the debt through your only son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, as we turn to your table, may we be reminded and reaffirmed that your promises are true in Christ. And may we receive it with thanksgiving and joy as we contemplate the good news of the Christmas promise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.